black ball. Black, black, black ball. up everybody my name is james d fury and this is blackballed i was i have been accused of being a fence sitter um since as long as i can remember um one guy really irritated me uh, when i worked for huffington post and he um told me that uh the idea of never taking a side on the right or the left was a trope in and of itself um, which I think is ridiculous. The I think it's so important, and I think it's really the defining um, issue of our times is polarization, that big overarching issue. And um, it makes me so happy when I see uh, people uh, writing about this because I think it's, it's really an understated problem. And that is when I saw a post that had this. Pladoyer pour l'extreme center by... Helen Buzetti, because I don't want to fuck up the accents. And um, I just want to read something before we before we introduce her. It's true that the average citizen does not identify with either the identity left or the populist right. And this is what partly explains the popularity of Francois Legault, because he understood the need for a political offer more or less at the center in the population. But the fact remains that the public forum is well and truly fueled by these two extremes, which respond to each other. And it upsets everyone. And it creates two fringes of society that are at odds with the rest. <clears throat> Please welcome my guest today. And her name is Helen Buzetti. Yes, I did it. <laughs> Good evening, James. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. We joked off air that I'm a product of a golden horseshoe uh, French education. Like, I, I don't know. I, I barely know what pamplemousse means anymore. And that's an affront. Um, to Canada because I was born in Montreal too. It gets worse. Oh, I know. I know. I get you. <laughs> That's um, I saw a random tweet and I, it was in French and I translated it and it was someone else that had quote tweeted you, I believe. And it was about your book. And I was like, it was like getting a B12 shot. I felt energized because I just really think that it is really a, a super important issue. And I was wondering um, why now, because uh, it, it has sort of been permeating, I, I guess, for a while. Yeah. And um, how worried are you that it will uh, that society will continue to go down that road rather than repair itself? Well, I hope uh, it it would repair, but I'll, I don't think we have gone to the extreme of this tendency yet. I think we will see more polarization before we recover from it. And why you're asking me why now? I've actually been thinking about this for quite some time now. I've been a reporter um, for 25 years or so, um, been noticing this these tendencies. And I wanted to, um, to talk about this, but I didn't quite know how to you know how to start this this, this topic. What, what was my 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 lead essentially? And then came the trucker convoy in January February, and I thought that was 
exactly what I needed to illustrate what I wanted to say. Because for me, the trucker convoy has been an illustration of the mediatic uh, dynamics or processes that are at play and which fuel, in my sense, this polarization. The -hmm. fact that um, we label people right off the bat, you know, either you're left or right, uh, you're federalist or separatist, you're a nationalist or a multiculturalist. We have all all those sorts of dichotomies in society. And they're easy. They they make it easy to think. But what they really do is put people in small boxes and we don't really listen to what they have to say anymore. We just judge and judge them on the basis of what label they they, they wear. And we did exactly that with the truckers. Um, mm. What triggered me was really from the you know, day one or even day zero <laughs> of this trucker convoy, I was reading columnists, uh, or francophone columnists. I have to say that I was looking really at French media mm-hmm. um, and francophone uh, columnists right from the bat. They just said these people were a bunch of deplorables and everything went according that you know, mindset in the following day. So we were not really listening to what they had to say. We were just saying, okay, they're deplorable. So we don't, we don't listen to them at all. We just judge them. And that's part of the process that leads to this polarization. And in part, I mean, people who feel they're not listened to, well, they tend to yell louder. <laughs> and that's yeah. what we're seeing. Yeah, it's interesting because um, before the pandemic, the anti-vaxxer, I'll just do the air quote thing, um, was largely um, represented by the Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. kind of faction where the autism uh, rumor was first, um, you know, discovered in, in in what turned out to be, I believe, a fraudulent paper or something. But the damage had been done because people were motivated by like the health of their kids. And it was really tough to untie that thing that they had tied for like a decade, uh, listening to these things that didn't turn out to be true. So when the convoy happened, I think I agree with you. The um, All I saw was villainization of people that didn't get vaccinated or were vaccine hesitant. The star had that deliberately hyperbolic uh, cover where it was a quote. It was hard to tell who it was from, but basically saying, I don't care if you die, if you didn't get vaccinated, which is just... Uh, you know um and is there is did you have trouble criticizing the left um as part of your book because i find that the left um uh, one drawback on them uh if i were to look at it from the outside in is that they often suffer from an infallibility complex where they they know the righteousness of an issue and anything uh that isn't that is the n-word basically you know? <laughs> well, there are a few things to unpack there. Um, first of all, you're talking about um, uh, anti-vaxxers. And I think it was it was larger than that at this uh, trucker convoy. It was more about all the, um, how do you say that, sanitary measures, the health measures, right? Yeah, the health measures, yeah. The health measures, sorry. Um, I, probably that those people who were in Ottawa in January, February, they were probably opposed to uh, health measures right from day one of the pandemic, which is mm-hmm. which was probably super uh, irresponsible in my view. But we were two years later. Um, most people who wanted to be vaccinated had been vaccinated more than once, uh, probably even three times by that time, um, and. 
um, provinces were, were starting to abandon some of those health measures because we were saying that they were not as uh, useful anymore to control the pandemic. We, we, we were shifting paradigm and it was okay. Everybody did that around the world. But Mr. Trudeau, for political slash electoral reasons, he, he was just out of an election in which he used um, the health measures, the pandemic as a wedge issue against Aaron O'Toole. Um, he, he was for the vaccine mandates as opposed to Mr. O'Toole who said, well, you should get vaccinated, but we will not impose any mandates. So Mr. Mr. Trudeau had to keep that line. So in January, when all provinces were dropping those health measures, Mr. Trudeau was imposing new ones and it didn't make any uh, scientific sense. There was no um, specialist who said that we needed that measure at the border for truckers, and yet they went ahead with it. And that's probably uh, the trigger point of all of this. That's that's why people were so angry. So probably that those people were opposed to measures on day one of the pandemic, which I think was irresponsible at the time. But mm -hmm. two years later, they were probably saying the same thing they had been saying for the past two years, but they, their time had come. They had, they, they had a point at that time, but because we had decided way back that they were deplorables, that their position was, uh, was not a good one. We didn't listen to what they had to say, but the paradigm had changed and we should have uh, acknowledged that maybe they had a point two years later on. Yeah, I, I, I kind of felt that way since the beginning that um, the people that uh, associated themselves with that movement were um, caricaturized, you know, by by the media. Um, mm -hmm. And I know people that went to the convoy protest and were like, we have no idea what the media is talking about. <laughs> like, we were there for four days and, mm -hmm. we, you know, we walked all around or whatever. And it's not like we didn't see anything, but it was like not, you know, largely peaceful. And people don't like it when you make a point like that. Like if, and, and I'll say it anyways, cause I don't care. Um, but the, the idea that like, if, if the convoy had burned down like three, like city blocks of shops, like they did in, you know, uh, place cities in the United States, uh, during black lives matter, uh, protests or George Floyd pro murder protests. Um, it would be like uh, insurrection and it would be, you know, like treason. It would be, you know, capital crimes and da, da, da. And, but, but it's not really how you protest anymore, is it? It's, it's what you're protesting, mm -hmm. right? Like there's a hypocrisy built into that, isn't there? I think there is. Uh, and, and, <laughs> Let me be clear. I'm not defending the truckers. I'm not defending the fact that they remained there for three and a half weeks. I live in the region. Mm -hmm. I know how it made uh, people's lives miserable, especially people living downtown. It was unacceptable. I accept that the pandemic was something so exceptional that um, demonstrating against the uh, health measures the demonstration itself, <clears throat> excuse me, could be exceptional as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe you want to demonstrate for three, four, maybe five days. But I think that after that, you should have go home, uh, gone home. Um, so, so I want to be clear about this. I'm not defending the whole thing, but I have to 
to recognize that we haven't been fair with these people. Yes, some had weird ideas. Um, some did things that were unacceptable, like honking horns, like in the middle of the night in, in neighborhoods where people were trying to, to, to get asleep. That was unacceptable. That but- was actually the touchstone, I thought. The, 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 if you just removed the trucks like 80% of your problems go away. You know, keep the people there, <laughs> well, the protest. still be there, but without the honk, the, without the, the horns, that, that would be yeah. much more yeah. acceptable. It, it also destroys World Cup games. You know, those horns in the bleachers, like you're just, what is that sound? It sounds like a, a, a spirit cow is just... <laughs> in the sky all the time I don't know, but... yeah so anyway so I'm, I'm just saying that you know we we didn't listen to what they were actually saying and mm-hmm. i think that's part of the problem now we don't listen so much to what people say but we we judge people on we don't judge what people say we ju- we judge who says it you know so if you're deemed to be an acceptable person then we listen to what you have to say but if you're deemed to be a deplorable person then we don't listen to what you have to say and sometimes i mean jean chrétien former prime minister said he used to say even a broken clock indicates the right time twice a day mm-hmm. and it was a way for him to say that even your worst enemies can sometimes have one or two good ideas and you, you should pay attention attention to those and, and i and i think that's what i'm trying to say is that maybe you can, you know, um, criticize those people who were downtown in Ottawa for many, many things, but they they had a point at that time about mm-hmm. the necessity to reduce the health measures or to only keep those who were actually keeping us safe and get away with all the others that were making people, some people's lives miserable. And we didn't listen to them because we put that label deplorable and then we stopped listening. And I use this example in my book just to, to, to open up the debate, because this is not a book about the, the truckers convoy. It's a, a book about polarization. And I'm trying to say that this is a proce- process that's happening all the time. We label people, we judge them. And then if we have decided that they're, you know, not good people, then we just don't listen to what they have to say. So everything gets caricatured and therefore everything's being seen either in a black and white um, uh, reality and, and and we forget and we erase all the gray, the gray tones. And, and that's why we get this polarization because there's only two camps uh, that, that exist. Whereas people are, you know, all over the map. It, it's interesting how keywords, ha- this is like, uh, I, I smoke weed. So sometimes I think of really crazy stuff. And and this is one of those things, which is that I feel like, um, I feel like our brains are now like search engine optimization software. And when we hear certain words or phrases, we just have this subconscious reflex that says, Oh, that guy said free speech, alt-right, you know, or, or that guy said, uh, we just want to distribute this money that up commie, you know, or whatever. Right. And there's, And, it's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> and when you just said deplorable, the first thing I thought was like Hillary Clinton during her campaign. That's what and, I meant. Yeah. yeah, right. But, uh, you know, it's interesting how keywords and, and sometimes they're innocuous like that one. But sometimes I think they do people a disservice, like, you know, uh, a whole generation of people growing up, not understanding that free speech is a bedrock of left wing orthodoxy, you know, born at Berkeley. And, you know, it, it, like because someone else says that they are you know, uh, they take a certain position and 
just the autopilot kicks in and you just take the opposite position. And it's infuriating. And a lot of people don't realize they're doing it, I don't think. And and the entire media forum, the, the media are doing it, and the entire public forum is is built around that, uh, around those um, automatic uh, reflection or thinking, mm-hmm. uh, because it's easier. Let's face it, it's easier to, than to explain in details and with all the nuances what someone really means. It's easier to say, oh, Hélène Buzetti, okay, she's a separatist, she's a, a leftist, or she's a whatever, put the labels you want to put on me, I don't mind. And it's easier. You don't have to think about what I actually say. You know, you just yeah. look the labels and then you can make your mind. Your mind. Like you say, it's like a computer, but it, it, it's not real thinking. And, and that explains our problem. And, and I talk about the media because this book is about my profession. That's what I do. I'm a reporter and I'm proud to be a reporter. A reporter. Mm-hmm. I don't buy into those, you know, conspiracy theories that, you know, media, because they get subsidized by the government, they're not doing their job properly. I, I don't think that's the explanation. I think one of the explanations why we, we act or uh, do our job this way is that, um, first of all, there's fear. We're afraid. As a reporter, when you you know cover whatever topic, you know that there there's this obvious angle that's being proposed by the government or the whatever the group is you know uh, you're reporting on, and you could you could think of other angles, sometimes more uncomfortable uh, angles or things that are less obvious but need to be talked about uh, again but you won't do it because you know that if you do it um there's probably an army of trolls on on social media that will you know call you a lot of names and you just don't want to do this so you go with the flow you just stick to the the um um I'm, I'm looking for my word here, but you, you just stick with the, you know, the, the plan, what, what's yeah. being offered to you. Um, another reason is um, laziness, you know, report. I'm, I'm not very charitable in saying this, but reporters have crazy days. You know, it's hectic. We have to do lots of things. Sometimes you have to cover one, two, even three events in a day. So you don't have time to wander off with different angles. You don't have time to look for different um, uh, professors who might have a different angle on the, on your topic. So again, you just go with the flow. There's also emotion. We, we have a this tendency of apprehending all topics from an emotional uh, angle. You know, we talk to people, what's your personal story? How do you feel? So it's very difficult to oppose to emotion, some rational thinking. I give the example of drugs. Um, There are more and more drugs that are very expensive that are being subsidized by our governments. I talk about one in my book, which costs $700,000 a year per patient. That's a lot of money. Um, So one could argue that, hey, with that amount of money, we could save much more lives doing something else than just providing to this one patient. But how can you say that this rational thinking when you're in front of the person who is actually dying, who needs that, that drug? It says, hey, that's my life you're talking about. You know, there's no way you can compete with that. But that all explains why we don't um, confront as much as before some of the ideas being put forward in the public forum. 
Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, we, we have a, um, and it goes from civilian all the way up to CEOs and politicians and everybody, a profound fear of optics to the point where like uh, often uh, press releases are laughable, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't, I, even I right now don't want to delve into the topic. So I'll just be ambiguous intentionally, but um, John Tory um, did an announcement on um, international day of menstruation or something and and um never used the word women in the entire press release as an intentional strategy to show that he was an ally or whatever and it was just like oh my god like you know and i'm saying oh my god not because i don't want to like progress but because it 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 doesn't feel authentic and Mm -hmm. therefore it's not resonating and and i'm wondering um I, i if how much of our left and right fringes are these like astroturfed kind of like group of people that aren't really um, pushing the needle in either direction, but they're just parroting, you know, and, and why that's important. But, but just think of what happened to JK Rowling, because, you know, she said whatever she said about that, that particular topic. I'm not allowed to say her name on the network because I used to bring it up every podcast on my own. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. I didn't know that. I'd ask every guest, what do you, how do you feel about JK Rowling? And <laughs> I had one politician that went like this. Well, I don't really know what she said, but um, I, I'm, she's absolutely transphobic. He, yeah, he well, that's that. the thing, because she's been labeled transphobic. So yeah. it, you can't support her anymore because you will be, you know, labeled as such yourself. And but there are lots of people who, who might think the same way she did or, you know, uh, to some degree. But if you say so, you're going to be, as I said, you know, um, criticize ostracize on social media so you won't go there so as a reporter uh, you, you would receive that press release from john tory which i haven't seen by the way mm-hmm. but i know in ottawa there was a, a similar debate and ottawa the federal government did the same thing they they, they didn't mention women when it, it was about something that's really womanly mm-hmm. um and if uh, as a reporter you want to raise that up and and mention that you will be criticized so yeah. sometimes they'll call you ezra levant or something you, know? you don't want to be it's not because you don't you want to be on the side of the government that you want to be nice with the government it's just that you're you're afraid let's let's face it i know my i know that these people reporters are my friend you know that's what i am i i i i meet people who are reporters all the time we're afraid you just don't want to go there you say oh you know what forget it i won't talk about it because 
you know, I'm going to start a shitstorm and I, I don't feel like it today. And, and that's what's happening. It, it, it's part of the process. We are afraid. So there are some topics that we don't raise anymore because of that. Is it, is it a weird feeling to, to leave out important stories because of the stress that would be involved with it so that, you know, you know of something that no one else knows and it does it, does it feel kind of like, you know, like you're helpless or you're just frustrated and just, you know, it's. I wouldn't say it's as much as leaving a story as, you know, not covering an angle. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about this story from John Tory and then you would say, Oh, by the way, he doesn't talk about women. You know, you could add that to your, your, your piece, but you know that by doing so, you will you know, bring all the J.K. Rowling stuff. Yeah, you'll feel well, like so, there so was, It's not sorry, that I'm covering it. It's just that there's some aspect of the topic that you're not dealing with. Yeah, I, I, one event that comes to mind immediately is the uh, Megan Murphy uh, when she was speaking at a Toronto Public Library uh, branch, and. Um, they wanted to stop her from speaking. She's the former editor of Feminist Current, and she had um, dead-named, I, I think the term is, uh, uh, Jessica Yaniv. She called him Jonathan, um, and she was banned uh, from Twitter for life. And anyway, she was going to uh, do a, um, a talk at a, at a library branch, and um, a bunch of people came and tried to stop the event. Uh, she was able to sort of do it, but they disrupted it and kind of ruined it. And then John Tory spoke out against her and the librarian had to step up and be like, she's never been charged with a crime, let alone a hate crime. How, <laughs> what, on what possible grounds could I, could I ever? And people defer to the emotion a lot more now mm -hmm. than I've ever seen before. Because yes. they'll be like, ah, it doesn't matter. She's a hateful person. That's their argument. Right. You know? but, and, and all this is right. And I want to be clear that I think that process happens on both sides because lots of people will say that it's the radical left that does that. And indeed it does that, but also the right does that, you know, in a different way, but by calling fake news all the time and saying, don't listen to the media. They're just a bunch of liars. It's the same process of trying to cancel uh, the speech of some people um, of some segments of the population. So I think, what in my book, what I talk about is it's both sides are wrong. It's not just the problem is not just on the left. It's also on the right. And we should stop doing this. And, and what I'm saying is that both are responding to one another because there is an extreme one. The other one gets more and more extreme as well. So it, it, in a society, everyone tends to position themselves in a way to make a, a counterbalance, essentially, you know. Yeah. Can I, can I circle back to something you said earlier about um, uh, the way that I totally just lost my train of thought. Did you see that? It just escaped right That's out of my head. Wonder, man. No, 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 no. Uh, sorry. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, when you were, when you were talking about the way that uh, media digest stories and the way that we report stories, um, is there, is there any sense in being optimistic that things like big tech can, can stop sort of enhancing the problem through algorithms and things like that? Like, are we able to pinpoint any technological reasons for um, part of our polarization? 
I guess. Well, I'm... you're talking to a techno, what we call in French, a techno nul. You know, I'm I'm a zero. Oh, <laughs> oh me too. Technology. So I will certainly not try to answer that question from that angle. But I think that um, reporters themselves uh, are part of the solution. And we have to rediscover some sense of courage. We have to... Uh, disinvest ourselves from it and, and, and see ourselves like just messengers. And as messengers, um, it, we will always be criticized. That's part of the job. That, and that's okay. You have to accept that. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to, to, you know, find yourself some courage to say things that are difficult, say things that will make people think. Uh, but, you know, when you think about uh, Socrates, you know, Socrates was put to death just because he was trying to make people think, think outside yeah. the box, think differently from the, you know, mainstream thinking of the time. And he was put to death to it. How, making people think never makes you popular. That That's part of the job. But y- you have to wear that and and you have to know when you want to become a reporter, that, that that's part of the job and, and you just do it and you just don't watch Twitter as much if you can't stand the trolls. <laughs> but I, I think there's, I don't know what the tech companies can do. Uh, they probably have one solution that's possible. I don't know about it, but I know what I can do as a reporter and, and what we can do as reporters is to have, to show more courage. Yeah. Yeah, and that would be that would be great <laughs> because um, they have kind of let us down. Like there, there, there are the tiptoeing and the uh, deference to certain issues. Uh, if it's you know, and that's on uh, you know conservative and progressive kind of publications, and if everything seems so artificial. And and the apathetic middle must be massive. I, I don't really know how how big the middle is in this country but i'm assuming it's at least 60 70% or something like that you know it it do you actually do you know that number like are people know. that either don't identify with anything or identify as a moderate i, I don't know but what i would say about the media um you, you know there's a tendency when you look at the like i said the trumpist in the united states the gilets jaunes in french and the truckers in here uh the media you know, treated all this in the same way. We have difficulties uh, understanding those movements and relating to those movements and the values put put forward by those movements. And, and this leads to large segments of the population who don't trust us anymore, the media and the reporters. And I think we have to be concerned about that. Why is it that like a, such a large constituency of the population don't relate to what we do. I, like I said, I don't buy uh, into those conspiracy theories. I don't agree with, you know, Poliev or Mr. Um, uh, Sheer de- uh, depicting the media as enemies of the people. I, I don't buy into it. I'm a reporter. You know, I like my job. I think my job is important. But yeah. I think we have to look ourselves in the mirror and maybe there are things that we don't do uh, the, the good way or the, the better way. And, and and we have to think about that, about that. And I think the fact that we earn a good living, the fact that we are usually, we have usually university degrees. So, so we, 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 we uh, socialize with other people like us who have inter- university degrees that cuts us off from large segment of the population and their values and their uh, vision of the world. And, 
we have to be conscious of that. It's like an ingrained bias, a social bias. And that probably explains why there are some phenomenons that we don't understand. Um, that thought that earlier escaped on a cloud of marijuana it's smoke, back. it came back. Um, the media fund I wanted to, to talk to you about. I have no idea um, what kinds of cause and effect situations have taken place or not uh, because of this media fund. But when I just look at it theoretically, it feels like there must be some sort of percentage of media outlets that are trying to play nice so that they don't disrupt the, the funding. I, I don't know if that's true, but it feels like just probability must be a little bit true. Like, you know, I don't agree with that, but go on. Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> but, but more importantly, I think is that uh, there might be uh, Pierre Polyev might be prime minister one day. And then what happens to the fund then? And where do the things get directed to then? It kind of reminds me on a much different type of scale uh, of the national defense authorization act that Obama uh, implemented in the States where he could legally um, kill American citizens without due process if they were deemed to be a terrorist threat. Mm -hmm. And all I kept on thinking was, what, the fuck? What, if, what if a crazy, you know, like war hawk, you know, Republican has that power and, and, and uses it. Like it's always the unintended, the blowback, the, the blowback of uh, future administrations. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen to this media fund. Uh, you know, it will probably remain, but mm -hmm. it, it, it feels like it's just another problem that we're going to now have to deal with. And I did. I don't know how to solve it, but I, I don't know if that was the right, you know, um, way to do. It. I know that it's a tough spot for you to really like, you know. You know um, I'm. I'm not. I. I would bet that if Mr. Polyev gets elected, this fund will disappear. I don't think the really? media will will continue to be subsidized. Um, on the contrary, I think that that. That subsidization, which happens at the provincial uh, Quebec level, by the way, the, the Quebec government uh, did something similar. Mm. Um, I think that's part of the solution. What I explain in my book is that the economic model of journalism has just collapsed with, you know, dematerial. Do, do you say that anyway? The the uh, um, the fact that we are all web based and you know you don't need the paper anymore, etc. So people don't don't subscribe. They don't pay for the information. The the people have taken for granted that information is free. They don't want to pay for it, and that creates a lot of uh, uncertainty in the media. And I think that explains why they they have become so um, interested by extreme stories because. Mm -hmm. That's what makes sell. That what that's what make people click on your story. It brings money. So on the contrary, I think that not having a, a regular revenues makes media more inclined to publish extreme stories, things that are flashy, mm. sexy, that's controversial. And whereas if you provide a stable um, a fund, a stable a, a stream of, of revenues, maybe they will be a little bit more. Um, you know, they will pause a little bit, they're a little bit uh, sober <laughs> in their yeah. in their coverage. So, I see this personally as maybe be part of the solution. I don't buy into the fact that the the media are nice, play nice to the government because of those funds. But I, I don't think they will remain if Mr. Poliev gets elected. Um, do you think there's a resentment that veteran reporters at say legacy outlets or or you know mid to bigger outlets have for 
bloggers um, and and some freelancers, you know, they don't always play by, uh, you know, journalism, like the rules of journalism. And, you know, they 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 jump the gun. Maybe um, I am completely guilty, <laughs> guilty of all of those things. But sometimes it feels like uh, they won't do the story because it was broken in, a, the, in un, untraditional media and and by a person who's relatively unknown. And and it's it becomes very it becomes very um, frustrating to kind of look at the 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 you know journalism as an industry or as a business because it, it kind of manifests in in people kind of feeling like their ego uh, wasn't checked and and they don't want to do the story because a, a blogger did it. I've seen it. I, I've I've been at the receiving end of it, and I just you know wonder if that's the right approach you know, and why they can't work together with the blogosphere or whatever you want to call it these days. I don't think I would be able to answer that because uh, I've never witnessed such a case. I think part of the answer to it is, you know, there's so much information nowadays that we have to check that, you know, we usually don't see the blogs and all that. <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. uh, this other info that you just don't have time to process because your your day is already a, you know, a, a malstrom. Um but of course, I mean, the, the mainstream media, they're trying to um, apply some some criteria, some uh, uh, some principles. And sometimes, yes, it's frustrating to see that some people might not play by the book. Um, I, understand, I understand the frustration, but I, I, I haven't thought about this uh, mm. much. So I wouldn't say anything. I, I like to ask people random questions just to take the risk. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> I, I just um, admit I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. Um, I would love to talk to you longer. I know you have to go. Um, yeah, uh, sorry I, about that. I, I would, no, that's okay. I would love to read the, um, the translated one uh, of Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. God, I'm see, such an illiterate. For extreme center. I am, I am everything francophones hate in other Canadians. Like I'm just like so bad at it. Um, and there's no excuse. Mademoiselle Langlois, if you're listening, you were a good teacher. So, um, but uh, I do appreciate the time. I will read that book. And uh, thank you very much for coming on Blackboard. I appreciate that was it. my pleasure. Thank you very much, James, for having no, me. No problem at all. We'd love to have you. Have here. a good day. Yeah, you too. Um, I couldn't read even excerpts of the book because, uh, well, there was a couple there. Um, because it was uh, it was in French, and I couldn't find an English uh, version of it. But the the language is is just familiar to me. She's clearly a lot more you know academic, a lot smarter than I am. Um, you know, I'm more of a you know stand on a soapbox and and finger wag kind of commentator when it comes to polarization. Um, but she's a seasoned reporter of 25 years and has seen it for sort of you know, uh, multidimensional because, you know, she works in media. Uh, she knows what it's like to be a civilian, you know, and, uh, and politics is, is something that she's covered. And, and those three things embody uh, the right ingredients to sort of become a uh, underpinning of polarization. Uh, that, that reflex to just not say this or that reflex to only say that, um, no one really listened to the criticism for a long time of the left because of polarization, because they would be like, Oh, listen to that, that fucking Tucker Carlson over there just said something. 
you know, and it could have been totally reasonable, but Tucker said it. Um, I found her fascinating. I, I think, um, I do think it's, it's one of the, you know, top three overarching issues of our time, uh, because dude, this is the, uh, this is how civil war starts to germinate, right? Like this is the way it, uh, you know, if there's a civil war in 50 years, this was definitely a domino, the polarization of society itself inside North America and the electing of a rodeo clown with orange hair and uh, no soul and the tea party and Antifa and the thing that happened in Portland and free speech being an alt-right issue instead of a regular liberal progressive issue. And you can't say Jonathan Yaniv because his name's Jessica now, even though you don't really think he's trans, but just is using the trans identity that he's co-opting so he can further victimize women, which is what he did his whole life before this. We are um, erring on the side of you know, we want to be nice to people um, before we want to actually apply some sort of like logic or structure to an argument. Um, and it's that infallibility thing. She's fascinating and I would like to have her back. So I am having an interesting week this week. On December 5th, I have Megan Murphy. On December 4th, I have, what do you call her? Carrie Ruddick. I think that's it. From the Ukraine. And the week after that is going to be kind of explosive. <laughs> I'm taking a break from explosive stuff. David Wallace isn't allowed on the podcast for at least another three days, so I can decompress. Uh, from the 8,000 things that have happened uh, in the last three episodes that he's been on. But the fix is happening soon. And we are going to make an announcement shortly uh, regarding launch date and a couple of other details. Uh, needless to say, David is working behind the scenes, um, you know, hooking up guests. And we're working together trying to figure out format. And it's going to be one of the greatest podcasts ever. And the best part is I can say all of the details of the idea out loud in public without the fear of anyone stealing the idea is because in order to steal the idea, they would have to literally steal David Wallace or find somehow another political fixer that wants to blow the whistle and ruin his life, <laughs> which I doubt is going to happen. So this podcast is a one of a kind, you know, it does. There's, there are no other podcasts that have a political fixer turned whistleblower and whatever the fuck I am. Um, but mostly important, uh, most importantly, David, there, there's no one like him. There, there's no competitor. You know, we have a monopoly on the ex political fixer genre. And uh, I think we're going to flex that for all it's worth. There, there are going to be uh, a ton of really interesting shows on the brethren as well. Um, there's going to be a couple announcements regarding possible documentary. Um, I am doing a uh, pod series on sort of the Richard Marsh, David Wallace web and how their life paths converged. And uh, yeah, it's going to be kind of a crazy uh, December and I can't wait. And thank you for joining us today. 
and this was one of the worst rambles at the end of the show ever. And yeah, I guess I'm a little stoned, but I've done 16 podcasts in 15 days, and I think I deserve a little R and R. And we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black Ball. Black 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 Ball. Black 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 The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.